really interesting episode today. I think we're up at number 47. We had David Gray, one of the first ones that I actually could have considered calling down to him because he's only about 20 minutes away from me. Um, Damien, what did you find most interesting? Uh, I suppose to kind of cover over a lot of it, just how interconnected everything in our body is from our breathing down to you know um you know uh managing uh you know strengthening around our ankles you know everything is linked and often we tend to look at different parts of uh, our different injuries or uh different approaches to training in a in a very focused in uh you know area say oh i'm trying to build up my you know my quad strength or something like that through like a gym workout or something but um you know, actually, we might be missing the wood from the trees a little bit there and kind of, uh, you know, not focusing on basic things uh, that our sport or basic demands that our sport might have on us. So, um, yeah, I, I felt like he covered a lot in great detail, uh, but we had given us some uh, good practical takeaways there as well. I think it was excellent the way we looked at the importance of coordination and that you know some teams, some players now do not have access to gyms, even with stuff having opened up. Just around factoring stuff in over the course of the week, it can be difficult to get in a full session where you build in your heavy loading. Whereas we discussed some exercises that will train the key movements with some perturbations around your coordination and different variations of them that will still allow you to develop strength that increase power, speed, wherever it may be, but also create that protection around the joints that we are most likely to injure, which I still think is one of the keys you need to focus on um, when it comes to managing players or over the course of the season so everyone hope you enjoy David Gray Dave, uh, tell, tell us a little bit about uh, you I know you from uh, I suppose Instagram for uh, uh, following you for the past few years um, but I suppose yeah just to, maybe if you could give us a little bit of a background for our listeners to who you are and kind of what got you into uh, into the line of work that you're in at the moment yeah um I'll try my best. Um, so, so yeah, pe- some people know me from from Instagram, um, which is a funny thing, but it's a strange one, isn't it? But um, I'm I'm effectively someone who works with people who are falling kind of on the rehab continuum, and it's mostly movement based stuff. It's all movement based stuff, to be honest, that I work with. So I'm a neuromuscular physical therapist, but I try my best not to identify as I'm a this because I just work on movement mostly with people and it's just improving people's movement, pain, rehab, getting them back to sport and um, are, are not necessarily sport. Maybe they don't care about sport, but just getting back to some kind of enjoying their body, enjoying their lives. So I'm working with a quite a broad range of people so we it's actually almost split down in half I would say so 50% of my kind of that side of things is professional athletes Olympic athletes high level athletes very high level athletes the other 50% is just people who want to go for a run on the weekend or play a little bit of GA or a little bit of soccer or whatever and then so that probably makes up 50% 50% of my business is is those two things and then the other half is coaching or kind of mentoring or consulting with coaches and some of their athletes as well so we have like a lot of very good athletes around the world and very good coaches in NFL NBA uh professional soccer professional rugby that would consult and would be asking questions around how do I do this with a squad or with a person or just teach me some things about movement or here's some specific questions I have so it's kind of half education and consulting and then half just helping people just with their with their own movement um and kind of how did I get to that was very long story involving a lot of injuries and a lot of pain and a lot of heartbreak and heartache over the years um trying to play GA at a so I was trying to play senior football and senior hurling for my club in Watford and then senior pu- football for Watford, which like is is not, not so in such a good place at the moment, I suppose, the county. But for a while there, it looked like we were we were starting to make some strides and that and it just kind of it's after falling falling apart a little bit in the last few years, but at the time when I was trying to play it was like we were trying to push on and become a very professional type of setup and 
my body did not love that amount of training at the time and I ended up with a lot of knee issues, hip issues, Achilles tendon issues and I just got very, very frustrated with the advice that I was getting over the years from physios and coaches and surgeons and doctors and I just said, screw this, I'm going to try and figure it out for myself and basically that's been kind of a 10 year journey to trying to figure that out, travel the world, learn and what I suppose what 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 took me 10 years like to try and sort out my own body or figure some things out is unfortunate because there is a lot of regret there in terms of my own athletic career not that it was ever going to be amazing but could have been a bit better than it was but um luckily you now you can help a lot of people in a lot shorter time frame so I try to see the positives on that side of things but um yeah so that's that's kind of where I'm at at the moment a lot of the work is online at the moment and a lot of the work then hopefully when COVID is over now we'll be doing a lot of traveling and teaching some workshops around the world and um spending some time with some pretty cool athletes for for a couple of weeks at a time Hmm. that's uh yeah that that that's that's very cool that was something I was hoping to kind of chat with you about today how have you found um i suppose w- with your your programming and your, with your working with people have you found the uh the movement of everyone in in home you know with lockdowns uh, has has that kind of increased your accessibility to to people or um or or how have you found that over the last year yeah so so one of my big things is like movement quality comes first so just like really good movement comes first and Luckily, we don't need a lot of equipment to actually just train really good movement. But we have to be careful when we talk about good movement because, one, there's a, there's a spectrum. There's a bandwidth there. Um, but, two, I think, unfortunately, most coaches don't really have a clue what actually good movement is. And they would say it's getting stronger in a back squat is good movement. And I would argue very strongly against something like that. Not that that couldn't be part of good movement, but that is not what I would define as good movement so I think yes because I basically when COVID hit we released a a program called lower body basics and 5,000 people across the world have done it now actually 5,000 people have bought it but I would say probably 150,000 people have done it um and including I know like entire professional international rugby teams and soccer teams that have one person, their SNC coach bought it and used it with their entire team. So um, during lockdown and during camp and all that stuff. So yes, we've like we've we've been able to probably get some of our work out there a lot better over COVID, just because some of the gyms were taken away from people, and people just had to do something else, and they realised that something else can be sometimes a lot better than what they were doing in the first place. So. Yeah, so good. I think working on good movement doesn't require a whole lot of equipment, um, and that's that's been a big lesson I think for a lot of people over COVID. Not just on my like my programs or anything, but for a lot of people, make do. You can get make a lot of gains without a whole lot of equipment. And most people, there's so much low hanging fruit there that they can just grab and feel and move a lot better without getting super fancy at all. I'm finding a couple of resistance bands really helpful now. Just once a week at the end of training, do a 15-minute kind of strength-based circuit and just, you know, focus in on the movement with a little bit of external load through a band, through, you know, a rail along the side of the pitch. Even just a football to hold to concentrate on balancing something else is huge help and hopefully will have a knock-on impact on lower injuries as the season goes on. Yeah, I think so. Them little, like, a ball, something like that, like little perturbations, being able to... Like if you if you understand kind of biomechanics and movement, it helps you with your loading because I know that if I do a lunge and I reach my ball up overhead, I'm probably going to get length through my abdominals and I'm going to load my quad a bit more. If I do a lunge and I reach the ball forward in front of me, I'm probably going to get a bit of length through my hamstring and a bit more hip flexion and I'm going to load my glute a bit more. If I'm if I'm my lunge with my right foot in front and I reach the ball over to the left side, I'm going to end up in external rotation at my right hip, and I might get like I might feel that I shorten my glute max a little bit more and I get length through some of my adductors. Versus the opposite is I get I use my adductors a bit more. Uh, if I if I don't let my heel hit the floor, I'll probably use my calf and my ankle a bit more. If I do let my heel hit the floor, I might get a bit little bit more of a posterior tilt, and I'm going to just use my hamstring and try and shorten a bit more so like there's a million options 
to uh, you just have to understand how these like the movement of the bones and the different reaches can bias load into certain tissues i think that's so cool but people would typically just say i just do a lunge with two dumbbells by my side and like yes i can keep making the dumbbells heavier or i can challenge where i load how i load the speed of movement um the type of movement i do a million things that i can challenge do i reach before my foot hits the floor do i reach after my foot hits the floor million things and there's so many options there and so many so much like value that can help people to just move outside of a straight line and is strength really just moving in a straight line or is it actually as soon as you reach the ball to the left at all and, and have some frontal plane or some transverse plane your entire body just falls to shit and is it a case then of being quite focused in on what it is at the end i want to improve like i know this group of players need to increase glute hamstring this group of players need to increase quad or is it worth having a variety over the course of a four-week block set you're developing them all around or are you kind of falling somewhere in between i think both yeah i think both like especially if you're working with a group like it's very hard to be very specific and some people need so i'm just more about like just and even some of my programs i don't really care if, if everyone does every single thing that are in the program i just want to expose people to different things and people start to feel jesus i am good when i do this one but when i do this one i'm awful and maybe they just do a little bit more of that so um so both both but then if you're working with an individual you can get very specific but i know like we just went back ga training and we just did they had like a they had like a crossfit type of coach and we just did a million billion lunges which are just keep lunging forward 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 and like that can be frustrating to me because which is a bad thing because i don't want to be thinking about things when i'm actually training myself i just want to do do it but uh, i know some of the lads have gotten some very cranky knees from just doing that again and again and again and the way he has us lunging is very quad dominant and there's very little hamstring or glute involved i would say so or calf even involved so i i would say like if that was me maybe some of those lunges yes i would do for a few days or a couple of training sessions and then i try and tweak it up where i'm reaching forward more i'm reaching down with my right hand as my like to touch the floor I'm getting lateral flexion through the spine one way or the other and just vary it up and you're probably not going to get as cranky and also like I can lunge maybe my knee comes towards my big toe maybe my knee goes towards my little toe maybe I lunge across my body more maybe I lunge and open out the legs more million things to, to play around with and just vary and like that keeps athletes on their toes as well because every single step isn't the same every like it's just always small little things that are happening you know and <clears throat> I suppose just uh, with, with all that, that's uh, keeping in mind, say, uh, maybe a lot of our listeners who would be coaches or um, maybe they, they, they would have a few uh, S&C coaches and that here as well. Um, but we'd have some maybe uh, just actual sports coaches, like say actual GA coach or soccer coach or basketball coach, someone like that, who, who might be actually having to double over as uh, an S and C in some uh, uh cases and that what would you have any kind of uh are there anything that you have noticed from I suppose your clients or or, or your experience of working with teams that there's just common mistakes when there isn't maybe um an S and C professional there maybe uh, to spot things is there anything that you'd kind of suggest as a kind of a, a maybe a a safe a kind of a safe uh way to approach um you know prehab maybe or or anything like that um good question um i think war like warm-up everyone is doing a warm-up so i i like warm-ups as a way to like do all the same things as we're normally doing but also to work on like sprinting mechanics and running mechanics i think it's a great time to get some of that work in and some people think like Oh, they're just drills that we learn off where, yeah, once you've learned the drill, you've got it. But like, not really, because if you're doing a warm up anyway, I'd rather not have plodding running in as part of it. And I'd rather have like every time my foot hits the floor, it feels like it's more of a pop off the floor. So like even the high knee drills, stuff like that, like I, I just don't like because this is the same in the rehab process with people. I don't like plodding running. I don't like like just plod along, plod along, plod along. Because if you think about like, if you get someone in a gym and you're, especially if you're trying to rehab them or just, just 
get them a little bit more reactive, a little bit stronger, you're probably going to be saying, like, don't spend too long on the floor in that plyometric. Like, pop, pop, feel that springiness. And then we go into a warm-up, and it's like, run out to the 45, high knees, plod along, uh, kick your heels to your butt, plod along, and all that reactivity is just is just gone straight away. So little things like that are, are super important, and I would try and take out as much of the plodding as possible. Um You'll, you'll get it in a game anywhere, a game situation where like the ball is up the other end and I do my little bit of plodding when I need to, to recover. But like, we don't want to ingrain that or train that into people, I think. Um, the ba- the banded, some of the, I wouldn't be a big fan if people followed my work, like of a massive amount of the glute clams or anything like that. I think the, it's not that they're bad. I definitely don't want to to say that. And, and like they, they, that stuff can definitely work, but you're probably seeing people, the more they struggle to feel their glutes or get their glutes working very well, they're probably people that just don't move very well in the first place. Like their pelvis is locked up. They can't get them hips to shift side to side and stuff like that. So I would place an emphasis on movement quality and like how the bones actually move rather than the muscles. If that makes sense, I think muscles will trick you. Like you could have thirty people on the field and and saying, saying like, oh, do you feel your glutes? You would have to ask everyone, do you feel your glutes here? Some are getting TFL, some are getting lateral hip, some are getting glute max, uh, some are getting their quad. But like, if you look at people running, jogging, lunging, doing all of these different types of movements, them movements don't trick you. If you have any idea of how to look at movement, like you say, yeah, he can move well, he can't move well, he can't move well, yeah, he's not too bad. So I would start to try and take, it's not a a practical thing, maybe like, oh, do this drill, but I would say try and take a, a mentality of looking at movement rather than worrying as much about the muscle itself. If the mo- if the movement is good, the muscle will be doing its job. If the if you focus on muscle all of the time, are you stretching your hamstrings? Are you activating your glutes? It it doesn't mean anything about the movement, and you'll very rarely see improvements, in my opinion. That's <clears throat> that's uh yeah, it's very interesting. I suppose uh, like often you might or I've come across maybe you've seen similar that like warm ups are are off, they're they're a great opportunity to to work on things, mm-hmm. but if it's just kind of uh like in the psyche of um maybe those who are warming up that, oh we just need to get through this you know and then the the real training starts after it uh that often yet yeah, warm ups can be kind of um uh, less than less than ideal or less than optimal I suppose but yeah. um yeah no that that's uh, that that's 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 brilliant i suppose one of the thing i uh, one of the reasons that i was like really uh excited to to kind of chat with you today was just because of i suppose the way you go uh, about your your training as i said look i know we mentioned it's kind of weird when you think about it, it's like i know you from instagram but um it's uh, like a lot of the videos and stuff that you have up you've people doing very kind of controlled and um i suppose what look to be simple movements but then when you take in you know people's expressions and stuff you're like well the people are really working very hard in this small range mm-hmm. um how 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 do you, how have you found kind of uh yeah how did how did you get to that point where you, you know uh you really started to nail um nail that down to your lower body basics and stuff uh mm-hmm. to really highlight some of the areas that people are maybe more commonly uh, struggling with yeah yeah it um i'm still working on that like all the time i change my mind every day so there's no like i i've i've made it or i'm here i have all the answers definitely definitely not um the lower body basics basically i had like my my calendar was booked up for three months in advance at that time and i said right like how can i make money without seeing more people so i just sat down and wrote a program and i literally sat down like as as regards your question i sat down and i was like what are the what are the things basically i want every client to be able to do based off basically all the common issues and and when we understand movement the where someone's symptoms crop up in, in like i one person's groin issue is another person's hip flexor is another person's hamstring like yes we need specific things for, for those specific tissues but all of those tissues attached to the pelvis and we would like to see 
the pelvis working and moving really well in three planes of motion so i have some pelvic drills there that move in three planes of motion and get get things happening and people who have stretched for 10 years to try and loosen their hamstrings or whatever it is they'll do a couple of those drills and then they'll say my hamstrings aren't tight anymore and it was because the bones that the muscle attached to just didn't move at all or very well at all so that's one thing like pelvic i put a massive emphasis on pelvis movement and three planes of motion i think most people focus on like if you talk about hip mobility with most people they focus on the femur so they start to rotate and do cars and all these things for their femur and they don't realize that the pelvis makes up a big part of the hip also and it's a big massive like center of your body big chunk of bone in there that should have relative motion within the pelvis and then the whole pelvis should be able to move and and a lot of people really struggle with that then if we think about the pelvis we have to think about the rib cage because how we breathe and how the ribs actually move has a direct impact and a direct correlation on the pelvis so and people can feel this in their own bodies as soon as they drive their chest up into the air their pelvis will spill forward into more of an anterior tilted position so it be, it's a little bit of a paradox and the opposite when i let my chest drop and my ribs come down my pelvis will tuck under or hopefully that's what will happen so trainers in the gym will often say or people will often say anterior tilt is bad right because hamstrings get a bit lengthened there a lot of load goes through the the front of the pelvis the hip flexors will get tight and i won't get much glute act, or not activation but the glute won't be operating from its ideal length tension relationship let's say so we know that anterior tilt is not a bad thing but also it's not optimal to be stuck there but then people go and cue people to have their chest up in the gym all of the time but if you understand biomechanics, chest up is an anterior tilt. They happen at the same time. So cueing one thing is cueing the exact same thing at the pelvis. So that's when I was like, okay, like I need to get people to learn to breathe and get their ribs to just drop down into a nice position, get the pelvis to move in three planes of motion. Then we have some very nasty hamstr- hamstring exercises in the program, which is my, like I have strength standards basically for every athlete and this this includes some of the very best athletes in the world like on 10 15 million dollars a year and like someone who wants to go for a run on the weekend and i want them all to hit my uh standards for isometric strength for the hamstrings because i think isometric hamstring strength is is like ground zero we should be able to get that and i i think it's more important than uh, a nordic curl to be honest uh, I think it's more important than eccentric strength. Not not that you have to choose one or the other, but I just m- need to make sure people get their hamstring isometric strength first. And that's like on their back in a foam roller bridge, um, which people might have seen on, on my stuff, or like on, a, on their heel, which is more just pure hamstring strength. And then the foot on the wall or stuff like that is more intermuscular coordination where I get the foot, the calf, and the hamstring working together. So if most athletes could nail isometric hamstring strength which we kind of know we're kind of starting to think that's what's happening in with with the hamstrings in late swing phase and stance phase is the hamstrings are in an isometric there's an argument over that um for much smarter people than me so i won't get involved in it but i still think isometric hamstrings are important i think being able to get your foot to pronate and supinate is very important I think being able to get co-contractions around the knee joint is very important and then getting the pelvis and the ribs to move in three planes of motion are very important. So there would be my like tick all those boxes and you're probably going to be in a really good place. So that's um, that's what I like to do with every with every person. And that's what one or all of those things will be will definitely be people will struggle with, especially if they're in, in a lot of pain or haven't been moving very well. I know that's a bit probably went all over the place there but hopefully that makes sense can you just explain to us what are co-contractions around the knee joint there so co-contractions can happen everywhere in the body so basically if you think about a more traditional model of movement what muscles are doing it's like if you think about your elbow might be an easy way to to think about it so when my if i do a bicep curl like an agonist and antagonist is it agonist and antagonist yeah so the bicep shortens and the tricep lengthens and then the opposite the tricep shortens and the bicep lengthens to straighten my elbow so very 
and that, that does happen, right? But it's a quite a reductionist way of looking at things, especially as speed of movement increases and environmental constraints are put on, on us. Because, okay, I have an agonist and an antagonist, but n now I have a 120 kilo rugby player running at me and I want to hand him off, which means I want my wrist to be very stiff, my elbow joint to be very stiff. And if he hits me and like the uh, only the agonist or the only the antagonist contracts, then I probably don't have an elbow or a shoulder anymore. So they both need to, all the muscles around the joint need to co-contract together even before he hits me. So there's pre-tensioning and they, they all co-contract together to stabilize the joint. And that's what allows me to kind of one, like brace for impact Two, it's it's a it's it's a simple body at that stage so if you take this down to the foot and say right my foot is swinging through the air and my foot is going to hit the floor you're probably better off thinking of it of it as my the floor is going to hit my foot and if you're a brain and you're saying i'm going to wait until i my the floor hits me to then decide to contract my agonist or my antagonist which might be my hamstring or my quad or my calf then it's going to be too late because these things happen. Oh, sorry, these things happen in milliseconds, right? So it's it's going to pre-tension all these joints, especially around the ankle joint and the knee joint, before my foot hits the floor. It should be able to pre-tension and co-contract around all these joints, and then that's a simple body because the body has just the brain, not even the brain. Sorry, the muscular. The it doesn't even go up to the brain. It's a spinal cord thing and it's a reflexive thing. So these muscles co-contract together and now that all the muscles are in an isometric and now that can just disperse force everywhere around the body rather than waiting to lengthen or shorten to get tension into a muscle it's too late so a lot of the people that with knee issues you will see an inability to co-contract around the knee joint basically everyone kind of understands that we need knee stability but they don't understand how to get that. And it's actually a, it's actually the synergy between the calf and the hamstring and and then the, the co-activation of the quadriceps as well that all need to time together. It's a coordinated movement and you cannot get, you will not get that from doing more squats. It's a, it's, it's a very coordinated reflexive movement that needs to happen before my foot hits the floor, when my foot hits the floor. And that's what allows the glute max then. I stabilize the knee joint. The glute max gets a chance to build tension and push me forward. So a lot of people that are, can do glute, glute drills for the next 20 years, if they can't get co-contractions around the knee joint and the ankle joint, the glute is this shorter, thicker muscle that needs time to produce force. It never gets a chance because the knee goes or the ankle goes and I just kind of end up falling forward more or my back muscles almost pull me forward and my hip flexors because I haven't set that up through the whole chain. And that core contraction, is that like you would notice the stiffness around the ankle of particularly of a sprinter when they're running if you look at them they have their, their dorsi flexed and ready so their their the front of their foot is ready to hit the ground and spring them forward they're ready for that and that's what gives them that more reactive or dynamic strength each time they hit the ground yeah it's performance and health because that's what protects them as well because there could be eight times body weight whatever it could be more going through their going through their body so that that foot will usually be a little bit more dorsiflexed when before they hit the floor because that what's that going to do it's going to tension the arches of the feet it's going to tension the calf it's going to tension the tibialis all that lower leg and then there's a bit of stiffness there now that doesn't mean like the foot won't move it should strike in that more stiff position it will it will yield into a slightly more pronated position and then it will spring off again but definitely before contact there is that pre-activation um pre-tensioning that will occur and that a lot of that will stay throughout until the glute gets a chance to push the hip extends through and then you'll see energy coming back down the chain so the hip will extend then the knee will extend and then the ankle will extend so you know you see people a lot of people talking about triple extension as if all these things happen together like this is a it's, it's it's the silliest concept i've ever heard because it's it's messing up a lot of people that try and force the triple extension to happen like really aggressively triple extend it's not it's a it's a glute it's a hip glute 
then the knee and then the ankle and that's energy transferring through the chain if your knee extends too soon you've not got a chance to finish the glute and all the timing has messed up so the triple extension happens as a result of the push it's not like i i triple extend to try and get me to come forward when you mentioned stiffness there i think it's something people often have misconception about it's not stiff as in like oh god my lower back is stiff because <laughs> I don't know, I just haven't been moving well, I haven't been stretching or anything like that. Yeah. It's a stiffness more like, I think the best example is a diving board. Like it's hard, it's rigid, but when you jump up and down on it, it creates extra force that allows you to go mm-hmm. higher and propel you higher up into the air. It's that mm-hmm. type of stiffness we're looking at. It, that ideally you want your, and we'll just stick with the heel or the, the ankle area for now. It's that stiffness is there, but when it hits the ground, it's like a diving board propelling you up and forwards again. Yeah, it's not. Uh, it's not that the joint is so, is stiff that it can't go into the mo- into movement. It's not like my hip is so stiff that I can't internally rotate. It's that I need to be able to create stiffness when I when I when I need it. But it's not that it it just like I just don't have a hip anymore. So it's uh, or a foot anymore. It needs to be able to pronate and supinate a little bit at least. It's just I need to. The stiffness is a coordinated movement between the the muscles and the fascial system and all of this and it needs to and it's a practiced movement because the more i practice my plyometrics my sprinting presuming i'm having practicing in some kind of decent way like the the body just learns this stuff because it wants to protect itself and it wants to and you want to move faster but it just so happens that these two things happen together because more stiffness now up to a certain point we don't want to get too stiff either but up to a certain point more stiffness means more protection around the joints and probably a a springier athlete and we developed that stiffness from well thought out and put together plyos with a level of strength and stuff there as part to support it really and coordination so we have to we have to remember we have to understand like the key attractors of of running and of movement so if you if you like if your foot isn't striking in the right position on the floor then you're either going to get way too much stiffness where you just stab the floor or else like you're just you're not going to get any so it's it's like if if your if your back leg keeps swinging back too much behind you you get too much backside mechanics that's gonna that's gonna kind of affect the whole the whip of the hip and all this stuff the swing leg the foot needs to be coming back to you as you as your foot hits the floor and this goes back to all the stuff that i'm talking about with like the warm-ups and the plodding running like oh you're you're nearly ready to go back to sport now after a hamstring tear go and do 10 laps of the field and like try and get your conditioning that way and so we we trained them in the gym we started to train our plyometrics our springiness and then they go onto the field and it's like just plod for the next hour and all our qualities that we've been trying to ingrain are just gone gone and and like yeah the hamstring might be okay but now like i just have no reactivity at the foot the, the achilles might get grumpy or whatever you know so that's why i i i think just a little bit understanding it you don't have to be like a biomechanist rant but just understanding a little bit about some of this stuff all the stuff that you're doing on the field already becomes a bit better because you just you just you just look out for it you coach it you don't let these silly things happen you don't have to have a, a 15 or 20 minute warm-up the lads won't get bored because it's like we've taught you this stuff and it's just pop 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 off you go now we're ready to train properly and how how common do you i I suppose like we mentioned maybe a bit about our our listenership are very much kind of maybe uh field sport uh based or invasion sport kind of stuff but how common do you think that kind of return to play kind of plodding along stuff is now i suppose if we go back to when when we would have all been say teenagers in that like that's that was the training that that was just those laps those stuff now it's moved on a lot uh thankfully but how common do you see or how common do you think it is from say what's presenting to you is, is it still there is it still kind of it's almost a bit too common? A, a, almost 100 percent of the time it's still there because like and even i like i've i would fall into that trap myself where like okay like if you think about a, a logical enough return to play for someone with 
whatever any any problem right um like i'm probably going to get them doing some strength work i'm probably going to make sure the range of motion is there i'm probably going to introduce some like light extensive plyometrics some bounding and single leg hopping and then what's the next logical ish progression is just okay you've done your hopping you're going to go for a jog but like in the hops i wouldn't let them plot i wouldn't let them be like between each hop there you have you have two seconds on the floor before you take that foot off i'd be like hop 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 like off you go go for distance here so the next logical progression is not applaud for that from there where you go for 30 percent. i would rather get them hopping for 50 meters in a row where they're showing me aggressive single leg hopping or 30 meters or 20 meters rather than saying you just okay forget about all this reactivity reactivity and go and plod i think we spend longer there we we get more aggressive there we we do maybe instead of the the jogging plodding stuff we'd start to work on uh like like you see track and field athletes doing like a skips b skips ankling drills all of this stuff where i'm not moving that fast but there is a pop off the floor all of the time and i'm ingraining good running mechanics so a lot of that stuff should come in then and then we can work on like 70 percent 80 percent sprinting hill sprints if we want pulling a sled whatever it is and we just kind of skip a lot of the crappy plodding mechanics and if they do need to work on fitness they can kind of get that somewhere else i think you know they're not going to be on perfect coming back fit anyway so like we just we just have to i think we have to be careful and it's an opportunity to get athletes back moving way better than they ever were before that's it's, uh, it's, it's very interesting to, to see things that way yeah it's um i suppose to move on a, a little bit from uh maybe the those lower body kind of mechanics and stuff you mentioned about uh breathing uh, earlier and the importance of and i know it's something that you've been speaking about quite a bit but that and i suppose core um i'd, I'd love to kind of get your insights into like when athletes in my experience think of core they think of your sit-ups you know your russian twists like they're thinking of the, the uh, of what looks good uh when they get onto a beach once the top comes off yeah. but um could you give a little bit of an idea of what i suppose core your, your core strength actually is the importance of it and the control over your your core um and then we might move on towards a little bit of the importance of breathing and training that in as well yeah uh good question there's there's a lot in it um the so the abdominals are very 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 important right the, the, that just doesn't just mean the rectus abdominis like the obliques the transverse abdominis uh like any of the deeper core muscles and spine like i would consider your spine like your your erector spinal muscles and all of that stuff anything around that midsection very very important and we we especially when you look at like lower body injuries and issues like hamstring tears they're starting to think that i think but they're starting the research is kind of starting to show that like an uncontrolled or an excessive anterior pelvic tilt has a role to play in a hamstring tear and when like I, I think it's a massive factor to be honest i get very good athletes who have the best nord board scores the best nordic curl scores and they keep injuring their hamstrings so at some point we have to say okay you're going to keep getting are you just going to keep putting all your eggs in the eccentric hamstring strength basket are you going to say actually it's I have poor running mechanics and poor control over the pelvis and yeah so no matter how strong i get when i start to get fatigued that pelvis spills forward into an anterior tilt and the hamstring is just not as strong anymore in that position so one of the things that is very important to keep the pelvis under control is is abdominals and one of the things that influences that is is the pelvis and the rib cage and so we have to start with i think we have to start with breathing mechanics because as soon as we start to become stressed if you think about someone stressed if you think about someone who breathes poorly their ribs will will always just flare up at the front 
and like we spoke about earlier the ribs flare up at the front the pelvis spills forward at the front so we would have to teach someone to exhale and get the ribs to come back down again and when they do that they'll feel their abdominals 10 times more than in any real core drill at least they'll feel their deeper abdominals rather than just their six-pack all of the time so it, it, it starts with breathing it starts with rib cage most people's compensations start to occur in, in their body from the ribs out i think it's the most like if you think about the center of the body the most proximal structure um is is somewhere around there and we all are asymmetrical in how we breathe like we have an extra lobe of lung on the right side we have a heart on the left side that keeps my left chest a bit more open there's loads of this stuff and we can start to assess people and say right you can't internally rotate your right hip or you're more you're you're more you're more likely to get a hip impingement on your right side why is that the case because you actually breathe really poorly i think in the first place so we start to see these asymmetries crop up and a lot of that comes back to how someone breathes so you can look at someone breathing and you can kind of predict okay you won't be able to internally rotate your right shoulder so the core does start with the rib cage i think getting that breathing well and that's what gets this optimal length tension relationship of all the abdominals so if we can't it's just like the glutes kind of this this thing about getting the glutes to fire they'll only fire if the see like not fire that's a bad word they're firing of course but they'll only be really good like if the sequencing is correct the, the bones are in the right position the timing is good and the abdominals are the same so so we have to get the bones in the right position first ribs and pelvis starts there teach people what like a, a stack looks like in terms of ribs are over pelvis and then teach people i think fluidity is is where the core is at like in terms of medicine ball drills throws not trying to be super stiff through the core or worry too much about planks or sit-ups but like if you look at the best movers in the world their spine moves really well they're fluid in three planes of motion and uh, the abdominals are are like lengthening and shortening and there's this kind of corkscrew effect happening through the body and i think it's one of the things i think the gym like traditional strength and conditioning does poorer than anything else is is training the core i think it traditional effectively traditional strength and conditioning comes from powerlifters really like it's not that old it comes a couple of hundred years old from powerlifters and if you look at a powerlifter walking they they are probably like a fridge like they can't rotate their pelvis and ribs can't move opposite to each other and so of course the core muscles won't load because they can't actually lengthen and shorten them in the transverse plane rotation wise so we often train athletes to move their spine like a powerlifter moves their spine which is brace as hard as you can don't let any movement happen in the midline and just lift as much weight as possible and that is actually a really good strategy if I want to do a really heavy back squat because I don't want anything to move. But as soon as I start to take that strategy from the gym onto the field with me, and we've all seen this, particularly in GAA, we've all seen the fella who came back after six months and he now just moves like an absolute block and he's very strong. He looks good in the jersey, but he can't really run anymore. So as soon as we take that strategy from the gym onto the field and into our even walking with us, it doesn't matter how many six or how many sit-ups you can do you you can't actually rotate your spine your rib cage anymore and you've lost a lot of fluidity and that is as a big red flag for me yeah it i uh, just the moment you mentioned that that block of a footballer there's there's images going through my head there's, there's plenty of them around <laughs> the, the mirror moment, I feel. yeah <laughs> yeah but you look at like yeah. you look at the best teams now you look at the likes of like a lot of the dublin footballers they don't look like that anymore football did go that way for a little while and like strength and size was everything but now like lads need to cover ground there's there's, there's so much running going on you look at basketballers like they have to be fluid and it's not you can have both it's not i'm like i don't want people to think you can't strength train you definitely can but you just don't want that strength training to start to take away range of motion and fluidity around the middle of your body or anywhere in your body and i unfortunately think that like it does for a lot of people especially you don't even need to change up that much but exercise selection becomes important and cueing becomes important do i always want someone to squeeze their shoulder blades back in every single lift that you've ever done in the gym like if you think about a nordic curl like chest up 
bench press, chest up, a row, chest up, a pull up, chest up, um, a deadlift, chest up, a back squat, chest up, and everything is just driving that chest up, driving that pelvis forward, squeezing the entire back of the ribcage together. And what do I do as soon as I move out into the pitch? If I, if I move well, everything is a reach. Everything is protraction of the shoulder and rotation. There is no such thing as squeeze your shoulder blades together in any field sport that I know. Because that takes away all of our rotation. I think our ways of defining strong, particularly as you go up the levels now and become more elite, has become quite different. It's not just how much you can lift. It's how much you can lift in a way relative to your own body weight but also how strong you are through and at certain specific ranges as opposed to the weight on the bar as you lift it such as you said the isometric strength in the hamstring when it's you know slightly flexed at the knee or through you know 90 degrees of flexion or whatever it might be that way yeah exactly exactly so like i have worked with a few of particularly Australia's strongest powerlifters and like they can't do them they can squat a house but they can they can um they can't do any of them hamstring isometrics that are in like running specific joint angles they can't literally can't do any of my ones for three seconds so like would you call that person strong in that in that position no they're just strong relative to their task and I don't I certainly I don't even want them to be I don't want them powerlifters to be that fluid. I just want, like, they their sport is brace, move up and down six inches, and, like, don't break anything. Like, just stay as stiff as possible. And I just want to be able to give them back just enough so that they can continue to do that, just enough movement so that they can still feel good and walk throughout their, throughout their day. But that is not the same prerequisite for an athlete that needs to be able to run and change direction and take contact and have my eyes looking somewhere where I'm catching a ball and, and holding someone off somewhere else. So uh, different, different tasks and strong. You're right. I think strong is starting to, that definition is starting to change. If we think of our main field sports, like the key movements are, you're going to do a lot of high speed running, so sprinting or close to sprinting speed. You're going to be changing direction, jumping and landing, and then taking contact generally in or around the shoulder area. So the stronger we are around those areas to support all that movement is probably... It's obviously, you want to be more powerful for the stuff you do. But if you get injured from the key movements of the sport, you obviously can't get better because you're sitting on the sideline watching train. So the more support you can give to those areas so that you're not getting injured and you can cope with all those demands, obviously, the more chance you have then of just being able to keep attending training. Yeah, and don't forget as well, uh, strength is also coordination because, like we spoke about earlier, I can be very strong, but can I, can my muscles develop tension fast enough when my foot hits the floor to protect my protect my ankle joint, protect my knee joint? So can the muscles like overcome? Franz Bosch talks about it quite a lot, like overcoming muscle slack. So it's how quickly can they actually develop tension, build tension. And when do they when do they let go of that tension? So strength and coordination are are they need to kind of happen together rather than just rather than just being strong around an area. It's no good if my muscles actually can't build that tension quick enough. Like ACLs are ACLs blow out in I don't know what the what the literature says now in in like milliseconds. Like it's it's too late to say oh my quad should have contracted there or I, sh- I needed to have a stronger quad maybe it just needed to be able to build tension a lot quicker and get the pre-tension and get them co-contractions sooner in the movement so that's also very very important when we talk about movement and when it comes to like on pitch work you know particularly if we have gyms now but some aren't that accessible and some some teams clubs just don't have a gym they just have the pitch and maybe minimal equipment what are some key things we can build in? Like I know I mentioned to start the lunge with various perturbations around it. But around the ankle, like is a calf raise too simple? Is it something that can still be used but developed on further? And rather some kind of key exercise that and we think of really low hanging fruit at the end or at the start of a pitch session. What what's some stuff we can start implementing there? calf raises are good definitely like i i would usually have seated calf raises anyway in in the gym in most of my most of my programs for for athletes because i just think you can't probably be strong enough down there um in terms of the calf and the ankle like I, i i think i think if most people went and learned from a really good track and field coach 
they would learn like if you look at me doing a plyometric versus Phil Healy doing a plyometric, you will see which one's ankle actually works really well. It's Phil Healy, right? Um, so I would say like any good track and field coach that can teach you like where you're supposed to be in space, what these drills could look like. Um, I think that's really valuable. I don't think we, especially especially in the GA world, so don't take advantage of that enough. Um, but but like if you look at the states, like I was shocked when I started to consult with more strength and conditioning coaches over there. Like they really have a culture of track and field over there. They pretty much, they all pretty much. When you're young, you will do track and field when you're younger, and you'll be exposed to these different types of movements. And they just tend to run better than us. I think and it's it's a lot of it is technique some of it is strength definitely but a lot of it is technique so I I think I, I it's not it's not the time in a training session to change a million things but definitely in the gym you can change things and definitely in the warm up you can change things and like if every single warm up you did for 6 months you had three or four drills that were really ingraining like good good mechanics at the ankle and the knee and the hip like that's a lot of reps for, for, for young people, especially young people like athletes who have never done it before because there's so much low-hanging fruit there. So I think I think like learning from a track and field coach is massive. I, I'm definitely not a track and field coach. Yeah, I've been on a few webinars with uh, Shane McCormick, Phil Healy's coach actually, and he just yeah. says, wickets, the, you know, your lion starts, little things like that. You just get so much from those. Like I'm hammering wickets now with a couple of teams I'm working with. Yeah. Last single leg, popping stuff and all like that it, just, it gets you so much both in terms of reducing injuries but also developing power and increasing coordination stiffness and everything around yeah that, and around if phil healy is doing that for 10 years and still doing those drills like as part of pretty much every warm-up she ever does like skips a skips b skips over hurdles different things like that then if we can give an athlete who's never done it and do it every training session which takes two or three minutes or five minutes as part of a warm-up like the the gains are are massive there, I think. Because you're still working through nice ranges of motion and stuff there as well around the hip and the knee and everything. So it's not the case of, oh, I really don't want to be taking up my stretches here. You're probably getting as much range of motion, but it's far more useful and relevant ranges of yeah. motion as opposed to the standard stretches that we used to do. Take out your stretches. Get rid of them. Get rid of them. Get active range of motion. Get people up on their feet. Get contact. Get perturbations in warm ups. Uh, get running drills in like i i I would say forget about the stretches in my opinion anyway i'm not saying i'm right it's just what i what i think at the moment and uh yeah no that's uh, that's something that has come up uh maybe in the last three or four podcasts in a row where it's just been like you know uh, people questioning uh the quantity and even the inclusion of stretching at all in pre you know going out to try and create that you know shorten range of motion you're, you're trying to you know create that power but you're stretching out uh uh prior to it you know you're kind of going two opposite directions um there but so when it comes to uh, and uh, just to go back to developing the um breathing you know to develop like good quality breathing practices uh, what kind of i suppose guidance would you kind of say if when you mentioned low-hanging fruit there for, from a breathing perspective uh where where could you where would you kind of like to see people start off they were trying to train that train in breathing technique uh, mm-hmm. a bit better yeah um so there's a couple of ways of looking at it one is like the physiology involved and and like being able to feel a little bit better under stress or working on my breathing i'm more interested in yes that definitely that but the biomechanics of breathing and what it does to my hips like basically some people do my programs and it's like i had hip problems for the last 10 years i've had 200 physio sessions and stretched every day and i just did two breathing drills and it's gone so it's like it's it's not the disclaimer i'm not saying that's going to happen to everyone but like but I, it's the biomechanics what it does to our bones is is what's really cool what it, the effect it has on our, our pelvis but um i like to start people on the floor on their back this wouldn't be like in a training session or anything like that i like to start people on the floor on their back knees are bent hands are on the rib cage at the front so more around the lower ribs so just for feedback you can feel them and you would i would start people exhaling out of their mouth like 
they're kind of blowing up a balloon now that doesn't mean like puffer fish cheeks and like big neck contraction it just means like keep blowing keep blowing keep blowing like you're blowing through a straw and i would like to see people being able to exhale for 10 to 15 seconds get rid of all the air but it only actually counts if you start to feel the ribs kind of closing from side to side so as i exhale because some people will exhale they'll blow but the ribs won't actually move and some of the most joints in our body are around the rib cage and if if i if i said to you you have an elbow joint there that just doesn't move at all you'd say oh jesus i better get that moving and if i said to you you have a rib cage that just is like a cinder block it doesn't move and these these attached to the spine thoracic spine and all of this stuff like you'd want to get that moving so nice 10 15 second exhale feel the ribs close we want to pause for a couple of seconds where like I don't just sniff and, and pull air straight back in. I have this little pause. I inhale softly through my nose. So like, uh, just feel that air come in. And I don't want to see the ribs kind of fly back up again where they started. It's more of this like 360 degree expansion where the whole rib cage gently opens in every direction rather than the whole rib cage at the front just flying back up again. So that that like that's a really good place for people to start. If they even just try it sitting down and, and try that, they'll realize they can't, one, they can't exhale for that much. Two, their ribs actually don't really move at all. Like I... Like I would be cueing people like that your your ribs should be moving six inches further than they're actually moving here. And three, they can't pause. They they get this like fight or flight response where they're like, oh, I need to gasp in air or pull in air through my mouth. And four is that they can't inhale in a silent, relaxed, fluid way where it just falls in and starts to expand. You'll start to see that it all like kind of flies into the lower ribs the lower ribs fly back up again and that's kind of pushing us back into that really extended posture that is okay at times but not something we always want to be in and if if my breathing is always pushing me into that 22,000 breaths a day then you can't really can't expect expect to have not to have tight hip flexors because your pelvis is going forward all of the time and you really can't expect three sets of 10 of a glute clam to start to get your glutes to quote unquote fire because they're not in the position where they actually would do that. And what's a realistic time frame to dedicate to that? Is it like get up in the morning and spend 10 minutes focused on your breathing? Is it just a few times throughout the day? Like how could people go about building that in now and say, okay, over the next two weeks, six weeks, I really want to make an improvement on this. So it does start to become subconscious. Well, in, so in, in lower body basics program, I think I have three breathing, two breathing drills each of the days so like each day you do two two breathing drills to, to to begin with and i actually have like a video there to say don't skip this like yes you will feel the harder hamstring stuff and you'll be like oh that's that's hard don't skip the breathing drills it's it's probably as important or more important to get right because the pelvis would be in a really good position then so i wouldn't like that to be taken more than five minutes of people's time so five minutes a day like even just less like even lying on your back once a day doing five breaths relaxing for a minute doing another five breaths there people will see really big benefits from that like they'll they'll feel more relaxed they'll feel their pelvis moves better their ribs move better if they do it right if they don't do it right just like anything they they won't feel anything and um it just depends on the position then so like if i lie on my back I'm probably going to get more air into the like the sides of my rib cage because the back of my ribs is closed and gravity is kind of coming down on my chest more so. So I'm going to get that like it's going to go more into the side. If I lie on my side, my sides are closed and it's going to go maybe more front to back the air and get expansion in the chest and the back of the rib cage. Um, if I do a million different positions and that, but that just becomes a little bit more detailed, but people don't really need to know that it's just to start to start the low hanging fruit is learn to exhale and get rid of every bit of air that was ever in your body and close the ribs at the front. That's a massive start for a lot of people. That's a, <clears throat> there's, there's quite a bit there and it, uh, it is fascinating. I, I hope like for people uh, listening that they do kind of see the connection literally from the breath coming in through your nose to the impact that that can have right down throughout your uh throughout your body it's uh it's brilliant um that like there's some of the 
big kind of things but it's um uh, it, it it's it's great to see that like you can actually just spend a small bit of time there it's one of the big issues that we often or that i often come across is just people's inability to even just breathe through their nose yeah. uh you know to 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 start that off and that can be that can be challenging enough but again i suppose it's, it's like anything really uh it needs reps uh it needs uh you know actual time and focus yeah big time big time especially on the nose like the week there's some breathing drills that we can practice but we would like to observe someone just breathing through their nose throughout the day it's why we have a nose and it's it's the mouth is like a a secondary thing where like if someone is squeezing my nose like i need to get air in i will get it in through the mouth it will keep me alive but it's not what i want to have happen all of the time so especially for people who wake up quite stiff like if someone if i if i have a client and they say i wake up with a stiff back in the morning or my hips are so stiff in the morning like i can almost guarantee they're breathing through their mouth for the entire night because the only movement that's happening through the night should be like my diaphragm is is getting a chance to pump and that's almost a massage for my internal organs and like everything just gets a chance to open and close whereas when i breathe through my mouth the people can even try this it's more of a and as soon as i like that my whole ribs at the front lift up like i i can't actually even avoid that it's just that happens which means when my ribs at the front lift up my my front opens my back is going to close so i can put my hand on my back and do that breath and i feel my back muscles really contract hard so eight hours of doing that and also that also means like my neck is going to be quite tight because they're accessory breathing muscles as well they're trying to pull air in for me probably means my hip flexors are going to be quite tight because kind of back and hip flexors kind of go together and then like glutes and hamstrings kind of go together and abs so um definitely low hanging fruit there if we're breathing through our mouth i can't advise people to to put a little bit of tape on their mouth because i don't want people to sue me but someone might someone might advise their doctor might advise that they should put a small bit of tape on their mouth and see if they can get that air to come in through the nose and then they can um, send a thank you message to their doctor that they don't wake up as stiff anymore what do you do during hay fever season yeah see you wouldn't get as much hay fever i would say if you actually breathe it really well through your nose because it's going to filter it the nose is also a filter it's going to filter out a lot of that crap so a lot of the hay fever people also breathe in through their mouth they're not getting that filtering happening I go try that. See, it makes sense though. It makes sense. It makes sense that the nose is a filter. The mouth, the nose also warms up the air as it comes in. In like it slowly comes in. The mouth is just like this sharp, sharp breath that's coming in. Uh, my body really doesn't react well to that. Mm. Yeah, no, that, that that that's fantastic. That was my next kind of follow up. What, what was your your view on uh, on on sleep tape or like uh, taping over there for for a night yeah so that's again that that's that's another small thing but yeah disclaimer uh speak to your doctor um yeah. before before or taking our uh, our advice <laughs> just lastly conscious of your time david one thing i i'm always wondering about is tendinopathies and like generally talk to people around you know lack of strength or whatever like that is there a coordination element built into tendinopathies I think there's a coordination element built into everything. Um, there is because that's how we that's how we move and that's how we distribute load to areas and away from areas. So yes, because when you like, especially if you see someone with a tendinopathy, you'll see them avoiding movements now, and and suddenly the coordination is altered. And even I have a problem with this sometimes because even when we get rid of a tendinopathy or someone is not in pain, you'll actually continue to see their coordination being altered, and like they the compensations that they develop to avoid that pain will still be there. So there's a coordination element to everything. Um, I think more so with regards to the Achilles tendon than the patellar tendon. Because patellar tendon seems to be something that I work with a lot and had a lot of issues with that myself in the past. Seems to be just a lot of load causes patellar tendon. So just low, like poor loading, too much loading. I get I get a, a very cranky knee. Achilles, I hear that and I see that in the literature as well, but yet when we work with people with Achilles and we get their foot moving really, really well again, 
I see Achilles tendons sometimes, not all the time now, but like a lot of the time start to get a lot better when they actually learn to load their midfoot better and get their calcaneus to move better and um, I'd get the pelvis into a good position and moving really well. So I think, yes, I think the, the Achilles and the uh, proximal hamstring tendon more coordination involved and more like which is cool because there's more things and more benefits we can get very quickly from that uh patellar tendon you just yes but you have to make sure the tendon gets really strong and the quads get really really strong as well and for all of them you want to obviously train a lot of strength and load the crap out of them but i think it's cool for an achilles because you can make changes pretty quickly a lot of the time when people's when you when you work on their foot especially yeah that's that's great um i suppose uh david where can people uh reach out to uh to, to find your stuff and to uh make contact with you uh if they don't hate me after the podcast they can just uh <laughs> some, some people they hate you after the podcast that's a harsh hot take <laughs> they, they, they might especially if they're a power lifter and they got offended but i, I must have a note on that that I love powerlifters. I'm just saying we shouldn't train an athlete like a, a GA player like a powerlifter. That's all I'm saying. Um, they can just go Instagram is probably the best place. David Gray G R E Y Rehab on Instagram and the website is the same. And um, they can just have a look at the stuff there. And if they don't like it, then they can unfollow me or block me or <laughs> or, or, or abuse me or whatever. Which yeah, yeah. so some people do, but luckily not not too many. To be fair, it was a powerlifter that like really recommended we get you on, so that's that's what led to this. So, the amount of powerlifters that have done that, like they they benefit so much from simple little things because their body has gone com- almost in the complete opposite direction. So, um, definitely, I appreciate that. There, it it just depends on the sport. Like they need to be tight, they need to be stiff, they need to not have crazy amounts of range of motion. It's, it's what they need so we just need to understand what other athletes need and not train everyone i think in the exact same way that's perfect thanks a million for today david brilliant thanks for having me on